The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. pray for us. Father, I do pray the words in my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you and acceptable through Christ, your son. We pray in his name. Amen. Beginning a new sermon series this morning for the season of Lent on the seven deadly sins. And we've chosen this series because the seven deadly sins are an ancient way to examine what sin has done to us and the ways in which we need to be healed because of it. And that's in part, in large part, what Lent is. It's an opportunity to do a sincere and honest examination of our soul and how we, by God's grace, can be changed and need to change. So now is the time. And today we begin this series, but 15 years ago we did a similar series. Uh, But then I wasn't yet the senior pastor. I only preached on one of the seven deadly sins, and I preached on envy, which is what we begin with today. And ironically, that week leading up to that sermon, I contracted pink eye. My boys were young at the time. They were full of diseases, like dirty little Petri dishes, rife with bacteria, and whatever they contracted at school, whatever they brought home to us. And so I got pink eye. Do you know what the medical term for pink eye is? conjunctivitis. You know it's bad if it has the word junk in it and it's in your eye. And it it makes your eye look like you've been living off of tequila shots for weeks. And my eyes itched and burned, burned to the point where they hurt. And not only is it painful and very unattractive, it's also highly contagious. So if you get it and you touch someone, they're probably getting it as well. So that's what happened. And I share that lovely piece of my medical history with you because In the Christian tradition, envy has always been spoken of as the evil eye. Dante, in his work, Purgatory, he depicts the the envious as being punished by having their eyes sewn shut with iron cords so that they can't look upon anything because in life, they refuse to look upon anything that was good, beautiful, true, or right if it didn't belong to them. 
Because envy is a sickness of the eye. It refuses to look on anything that's good, joyful, pleasurable, if it is superior to it. Jesus speaks about it because it's deadly. You remember when he said the eye is the lamp of the body? So if your eye is dark, then how great is the darkness within you? And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, are our eyes sick right now? Is there a brokenness of sight for us? And if so, then how can they be healed? So three points this morning, a story, a definition, and a cure. First of all, a story, a story of envy. There are actually many throughout the scriptures, usually involving siblings. There's Joseph and his brother. There's Rachel and her sister Leah. There's Esau and his brother Jacob. But the one that Bill read for you is the more original story of envy between siblings, that of Cain and Abel, which has been the inspiration for so much art and so much literature, including the greatest novel ever written, which of course is, no, 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 East of Eden by John Steinbeck. If you thought or said anything else, you're wrong, East of Eden. <laughs> and what happens there is that Charles Trask is the Cain version there for John Steinbeck. And he doesn't kill his brother, but he drugs him. And he takes his wife to bed at the very beginning of the novel, which in many ways is worse than death. Here, Cain is the firstborn. And notice what Eve says of him. She says, I've gotten a man from the Lord. The name Cain and the word gotten in Hebrew are very, very similar, leading many scholars to think that Eve is naming her firstborn son here. The man from the Lord is here. I've, I've got him. I've got him who? We have to go back just one chapter to Genesis 3 and remember the curses pronounced by the Lord, not only upon Adam and Eve, but especially upon the serpent. Remember what he said to the serpent. Cursed are you, and from Eve, one will come who will crush your head. You will strike him at the heel, but he will crush your head. In other words, there's gonna be one who comes from Eve, and he is going to undo all of your works, all of the works of, of Satan, of sin and death, to undo them all and to set everything right. And Eve thinks she's got him in Cain. But it's not Cain. Cain isn't the one to undo the works of the serpent, but to welcome them and to be overwhelmed by them. Abel, the younger brother, is a shepherd, and in due course, they both bring offerings to the Lord. They bring sacrifices because any and all worship is sacrificial. God cannot be approached and is never approached without a sacrifice. What we do here today is sacrificial. We bring a sacrifice. And so Abel brings a sacrifice, as does Cain. But Abel's is accepted and Cain's is not. And why? Well, verse 3 and 4 tell us. And it's not because Cain brought crops. He was a farmer. It's not that. And Abel brings the lamb. That is not the distinction. Verse 3 says that Cain brought an offering. But Abel, in verse four, it says that he brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions, which sounds strange to us. We don't really understand what the point is there because we are accustomed to eating what type of meat? Lean meat. But what does fat do to meat? It, it makes it tasty. It makes it good. The, the flavor is where the fat is. And so what it's saying is that he offered the whole animal. He didn't hold back the best cuts for himself. He offered the entire animal. And what animal? the firstborn of all of his animals, the firstborn in the springtime. These animals weren't just his livelihood. They were also literally what he lived off of and ate. And if you deny yourself and you fast and you frame from eating the very first thing that you have the opportunity to eat, what are you saying to God? What are you demonstrating to him? At least what Jesus says at his first temptation in the wilderness by Satan, where he says, Satan offers him stones to turn into bread. And what does he say? 
Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. So Abel does hear what Jesus eventually would say. He does what Adam and Eve failed to do because back in the garden, they had one tree. They had one tree with one fruit to deny themselves and to not take it and in not taking it, offer it to God. It was their sacrifice and they refused to offer it and they took it from themselves. But, but Abel here does exactly what his parents failed to do. And he offers the whole animal, the firstborn animal saying to the Lord, you above anything else in this world are what I set my heart upon. But what about Cain? What's the text say about his sacrifice? It doesn't say much. There's no description. It's just an offering. It's not unique. It's not special. It's not costly. It's nothing that communicates you. What we just saying, you, O oh Lord, are the one upon whom I wait. You, O oh Lord, are the one I lift up my soul to. I love most. I need most. I entrust myself to that you are above anything else in this world. Nothing about his offering or sacrifice communicates that because he's not sacrificing. He's not worshiping. He's there. He's going through the motions, but his heart's not engaged. It's much of what Josh preached on a few days ago at Ash Wednesday when he talked about religious performance art or religious theater. His heart's not engaged. His heart's not well. And what about ours? You're here this morning. You're listening. Maybe you're taking notes. You're going through the motions. Is your, are your hearts engaged? Because Cain's is not, it's not well. And I want to argue that it's not been well for a long time, that this is something that's been building with Cain. Because notice, Cain doesn't just get angry when his offering isn't received. What does the text say? He gets very angry. Ancient Hebrew didn't have adverbs. They only had adjectives. And so they doubled up the adjectives for emphasis. So literally the text says he was angry, angry. And we can imagine there are times before when he was just angry. Something like this happened, maybe, maybe repeatedly multiple times and he was angry, but here it's like a corner has been turned. It's like a dam has broken within Cain and he's very angry. And also notice that the Lord speaks about sin in relation to Cain in a way that he doesn't speak about it in relation to Abel. He says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It's this image of a lion waiting outside, crouched, ready to pounce the second that he walks out. Now, in one sense, that's true of us all, all the time. As I often tell you, sin is this alien, invasive spiritual power that seeks like a lion to tear apart whatever it is that God has joined together. And it's, it's like this, this cancer that's been released upon our world. It dwells within the world, but it dwells within us. And if it's not resisted, if it's not contradicted, it will grow and metastasize within us and eventually take over all of us and overwhelm all of us. And it seems like that's the point where Cain has reached. That over time, it's grown and it's grown and it's grown. And now it's zeroed in on him. It's desire is especially for him because he's at that point where it will almost take him over. In other words, this is his last chance. This is Cain's last chance. And if he doesn't turn back, something irreparable, some irreparable damage is going to be done. And I promise you, at some point in your life, you will find yourself here. You will find yourself here and it will, it'll be your last chance to turn back before some irreparable damage is done. Some of you may be there already right there this morning. And if you are, you didn't get there overnight. It's been a long time coming. It's been a process because there's a difference between acts of sin, individual acts of sin and vice. And we need to know the difference. In fact, it's one of the reasons that we're doing this series because the seven deadly sins as a title is not technically correct because envy, vainglory, sloth, greed, anger, gluttony, lust, they're not 
labels for individual acts of sins. They speak about and describe habituated ways of being. There are seven ways in which sin works, and then we respond, and it works, and we don't we don't give in and it works and we relent and we give ourselves over to it time and time again until what it is that that sin is leading us to do becomes reflexive in us. It becomes second nature to us in the sense like if you tell a lie and then before too long you tell another one and then you tell another one and another one. Before too long after telling so many lies, you don't just tell lies every now and then, you are a liar. That's a vice. And I often tell you, we, we start by choosing sin, but before too long, it chooses us. It's like skiing down a mountain. Remember, I've, this is my constant and continual illustration for you with this. The first time down a mountain, a fresh powder day, the first time down, you'd carve the path. You choose your path. But after the end of the day, after the end of the season especially, after hundreds, if not thousands of people have skied down the mountains, paths get carved, moguls get built, and you don't choose your path. The mountain chooses for you. It directs your path. That's a vice. And that is Cain. And so what about us? What about you? What about me? Here's a definition. Point two. Because Cain isn't simply desired by sin, he's also envious. Envy is sorrow over another's good. Sorrow over another's good. And that's what we see here in Cain because the text says that his face fell. He becomes sad. And why? And it's not just because his sacrifice was rejected. In fact, that's not the first thing the text tells us. The first thing it says is that Abel's was accepted. Literally, the text says the Lord saw Abel and saw his sacrifice. But Cain and his offering, he saw not. And so Cain's face falls. He becomes angry, but he also becomes very, very sad because Abel was accepted and he was rejected. And the two for him are inextricable because for envy, it depends upon a conditional and a comparative view of life. The envious are those who measure self-worth and determine their identity comparatively. They perceive that they measure up and compare to others. And if they do so well, then they value themselves. Then they see and, and think of themselves as having honor and dignity and value. But if they don't, then they're nothing. When somebody else has greater value in their eyes, they have less value in their eyes. If somebody is winning, if somebody is succeeding, if somebody is flourishing and thriving, then they are losing because everything is comparative. Everything is competitive. And, and they hate themselves for it. They not only hate others, they hate themselves and they become so sad because envy is sorrow over another's good. And I know no better illustration than the 1984 movie Amadeus. I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's a story of the relationship between two great 18th century composers, one you've never heard of, Antonio Salieri, and then, of course, the famous Wolfgang Amazet Deus Mozart. Salieri, as a young man, he prays that the Lord would make him a great composer and a great musician. And he, he says that he will dedicate his entire life to the Lord. He'll live a, a life of celibacy if the Lord would just make him great. But then Mozart bursts onto the music scene in Vienna, and he has this unparalleled talent. And, and Salieri knows that there's no way that he can surpass Mozart in his talent and in the praise and the attention that he's getting. And so because he can't surpass him, he decides that he's going to destroy Mozart's life. And he does. And Mozart dies. And he becomes grief-stricken over his role in his death. And so he, Salieri, tries to commit suicide. 
And the opening scene of the movie is him trying to commit suicide, which doesn't, doesn't succeed in. And then a priest comes to hear his confession about why he tried to commit suicide. And as the priest approaches, he's playing the piano, Salieri is. And the priest approaches and he says, Salieri says, do you, do you recognize this piece? And he plays it. And the priest says, no. So he plays another piece. The priest doesn't recognize it. Plays another piece. The priest doesn't recognize it. They're all his pieces. And then he says, oh, do you recognize this one? And he plays it. And the priest says, oh, of course. I didn't know that you wrote that piece of music. And immediately Salieri's face falls. It's filled with, with bitterness and anger. And he says, I didn't. That was Mozart. And he hates Mozart. But he hates himself even more because he couldn't surpass Mozart. Because everything is ranked for the envious. For the envious, everything and everyone exists on a ladder and you're either climbing up and surpassing people on the ladder or you're falling down on it. And if you can't climb past them, if you can't be better, more gifted, more successful, more beautiful, more beloved, then you're nothing. And if you can't destroy them, if you can't pull them down beneath yourself, then you will just destroy yourself. Because envy is the worst of the vices. It's the worst. Because it has no gratification. Greed has its possession. Gluttony has its consumption. Wrath has its revenge. Lust has its pleasure. Sloth has its repose. Vanity has its applause. But all envy has is its sorrow over another's good. And so are you envious? If you're single and you want to be married, does it hurt? Does it hurt at least a little, secretly hurt? Something you'd never tell anyone when somebody else gets engaged and you don't. Or if you're trying to get into a certain university, is it hard to be happy for someone who gets in and you don't get in? Or you simply feel less valuable, less good at whatever you do around someone who's truly successful or, or less valuable, less beautiful if you're around someone that's truly beautiful? And do you talk about them behind their backs? Say a little snide, slightly slanderous, unkind, belittling things behind their back? Rebecca DeYoung and her excellent book, Glittering Vices, says that the envious usually operate this way. They operate in passive, aggressive, indirect, kind of backstabbing sort of ways because envy is always accompanied with a sense of powerlessness. And so there's no open or direct attack on others. It's always sly. It's always subtle. St. Augustine agrees with her a long, long time ago. He said, he gave the, in his confessional manual, he listed all these different ways that, that envy shows itself. He says, even feeling offended at others' talents, like you personally feel wronged when you see someone else who is great. That's envy. Or pleasure at another's difficulties or distress. Something bad happens to someone, you feel a little bit of pleasure in it. That's envy. Or reading false motives into other people's actions and words for no reason. Or belittling others. Or making false accusations against others or gossip in any form, initiating it, collecting it, listening to it, receiving it, or furthering, retelling it, that's envy. Arousing suspicion and antagonism at people, scorn for other people's abilities, scorn and ridicule because someone's just good at something, or teasing, bullying, ridicule, prejudice in any form, Prejudice against those that you consider inferior or prejudice against those that consider you inferior or prejudice against anyone who threatens your security or position, it's all envy. And so what about you? Are you envious? If you are, here's a cure. Point three. This is it. The only cure for the evil eye. 
And that is we have to gain a new way of seeing. We have to gain a new way of seeing ourselves and seeing others. We have to gain a new way of ascribing self-worth, one that's not comparative, one that's not competitive with, uh, with, with others, one that, that doesn't ascribe worth and value and dignity, dignity in any way except that way which is unconditional and truly gracious. And in order to do that, we have to look at something new. We have to stop looking at ourselves. We have to stop looking at others. We have to gain a new object upon which to gaze that might captivate us and enthrall us. And that's exactly what happens with Peter here in our gospel reading from Luke 5. Because Peter's not a good man. I know he's a disciple. I know he becomes an apostle. But he's not a good man. In his own words here, he tells Jesus, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. And apparently he's not a very good fisherman either because he fishes all night and catches nothing. And so morally not good, vocationally a failure, poor, uneducated, and ethnically Jewish, meaning conquered and marginalized. And so Peter doesn't have much to be proud of. Not much at all. Proud in the best sense of the word. Like the Avett Brothers song, A Perfect Space, where they sing, pride like my mother had, not the kind in the Bible that turns you bad. Good pride. Like what does Peter have to be proud of? Not much. And some of you are sitting here this morning thinking, I don't have much. You're looking at your life and just saying to yourself, there's not much. And you need to see that Jesus chooses him. In verse two, he's got two boats to choose from. He chooses Peter's. He gets into Peter's boat. And why? No reason beyond himself. Nothing about Peter. Jesus chooses Peter because Jesus wants Peter. He wants to be in Peter's boat. He wants to be in Peter's boat so he can get into Peter's life. It's truly unconditional. It's utterly gracious. And what is it that Peter must do to finally truly begin to see Jesus? He has to push out into the deep. That's what Jesus tells him to do. Because it's out in the deep, the deep waters of life, and the places and the areas where he's already failed, toiling all night, catching nothing. It's in those places where you've already failed, where you've already known loss and pain and sadness and embarrassment and shame. That is where Jesus wants you to go with him because that's only the place where you can truly see him. It's not on the shore where you can get up and you can walk away. It's not on the shore where, where there's no level of commitment. It's not on the shore where you're still in control. You can't see Jesus there because you don't need Jesus there. You've got to push out into the deep with him, whatever that means for you, because you've got to entrust yourself to him and to his word there, even if it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to Peter. He protests, he complains, he objects to Jesus out in the deep with Jesus when he says, throw your nets on the other side. He thinks that's ridiculous, but he does it. And when he does it, he sees in ways that he's never seen before. And he would see so much more of Jesus. Eventually he would see this man who's also God in the flesh control not only these deep waters, but the deep, chaotic, most dangerous waters of, of all of the world, ultimately of the cross. He would see Jesus go to the cross for him, a sinful man, because he's the one that Eve hoped for. He's the one that she looked forward to. He was the one who, unlike Cain, was actually his brother's keeper. He is our keeper. And he, in his blood, cries out to God like Abel's, but a better blood, a, a, a blood that cries out in the heavenly places to God for all eternity, for you, for me, because he's the sacrifice. He's the only ultimate and final sacrifice. He is what we bring this morning as we approach God, him and him alone. And so do you see him this morning? To see him, you're gonna to have to take your eyes off yourself. 
So will you take your eyes off yourself? Will you take your eyes off of others? Will you stop comparing yourself to others? God does not compare you. Do you know that? He does not compare you with anyone. There is no comparison before God for you. There is no competitiveness with others before God. He does not compare you to anyone or to anyone that you would ever set your eyes upon. No one. He's unconditional in his desire for you. He's unconditional in his choice and his love and his sacrifice for you. Unconditional. So stop comparing yourself. Stop gazing at yourself. Stop gazing at others and start fixing your eyes upon him. Your life will be different. In fact, before you leave, I want you to do one thing. And that is when you, when you exit the sanctuary, go through the narthex and do that gallery space out there and you'll see this new art exhibit by this man named Rob Pepper. He's a principal, the principal of the Art Academy at London. And before he became a Christian, he would travel around England to all of these different cathedrals. He would sit in the cathedrals and he would stare and gaze at, at the stained glass. And then he would draw what he saw in the stained glass, but he wouldn't look at what he was drawing. He would only look at the stained glass. And so the work that you see out there, he drew without looking at it. He was looking at a different object. So what his life produced came about while he was looking at something else. If you want your life to produce that which is good and right and true and beautiful and lasting and truly by God's presence and work within, you can't look at it. You can't look at yourself. You can't look at what your life's producing. You can't look at others. You can't look at what their lives are producing. You have to fix your eyes upon him. That's the Christian life. That is it. And when you do, when you fix your eyes upon him by faith, then your life will be changed. It will begin to produce that which you never thought possible, truly beautiful, truly arresting, truly good. It's God in and through you. And so stop comparing yourself. Give up all of that. Push out into the deep with Jesus that you might see him there and seeing him and gazing upon him might begin to live the life that you were created and redeemed to live. Your life might be begin to produce the beauty and the art that he intends to bring about through you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us the grace and the courage necessary to take our eyes off ourselves and to place our eyes upon you, to take our eyes off of anyone else and anything else in this world and to gaze upon you and to see the true object for which we were created, that we might know you, that we might know you through your son. And in knowing you through your son, we might be transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.